Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka golden ticket scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated golden ticket scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine. America and some parts of Australia. It is I, your wispy, whimsical wizard, Jake Young. And it is me, your incredibly grounded, going to law school bruiser, Holden McNeely. Objection! I, uh, but why don't you pursue poetry? <laughs> <laughs> because it's lame, and for lame lames. I, I'm here to lay down some foundations, uh, like um, no more smoking in libraries. What if I told you that poetry could also be in the form of a video game? You're being a filthy beatnik right now, Jake, and I don't trust those, and the government doesn't trust those, but you have caught my interest. What sort of video game would you be talking about, Jake? I'd be talking about the PlayStation Classic Shadow of the Colossus. Are we still playing characters right now, or are we just back to being us? The old Jake is dead. Oh, no! New whimsical wizard Jake is oh, dominant. God help us. <laughs> Someone release me from this horrible nightmare. And scene. Jake, I am excited. The scene never ends, no! Holden. This is the world now. Roger Ebert said that games couldn't be art, but do you know that art is whatever you make of it? How come your character sounds like the narrator of a film trailer? <laughs> because art is film is Motion is sound is power. You don't need a full story. You don't need just a giant dialogue box. All you need is just a guy and a dead lady and some big monsters. I'm going to go ahead and say that everything you've just said is 100% complete and utter nonsense, but I am still on board. I cannot wait to discuss You're this You're being a real uh, Roger Ebert about this. All right, Cisco, can we please? My face is falling apart. Is <laughs> oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, now I'm back. you're out. Oh, now back. you're back. I, I, I got lost in the new you. I don't want the old you back. The wanna... meds kicked in. I'm back, baby. <laughs> Today we're talking about Shadow of the Colossus, and I'm so happy we are, Jake. Every now and again, you know, we're texting each other, and we're like, Oi, what should we do, R- right? You know, or whatever. You know how we talk. Fancy a point, mate. Yeah, exactly. We always talk in British accents, uh, Cockney British accents, when we're trying to discuss which topic we should do. And usually, when Jake gives me a topic suggestion, I want to crawl through my text messages <laughs> and strangle him to death. But this time you were like, Shadow of the Colossus. And I was like, no fucking argument. Well, from technically, me. first I was like, Funyuns. <laughs> and you were like, we're not doing an episode on Funyuns <laughs> because you're in a little box and I'm trying to break you out of it. <laughs> It's just always just like I think you're. I'm always texting you about new topics, and you're at the Seven <laughs> <laughs> Eleven. So I just get from Gatorade. time immemorial, the taquito has been valued in cross cultures and societies. Now, at Shadow of the Colossus is, is an incredible, incredible game. I think so many people who love video games will always mention it in terms of their fond, you know, top lists. It, it's on that list of. Best games of all time. It's on that list of most artful games easily of all time, you know, and and really started the trend in a way. Uh, Yeah, it's just an incredible thing, and I'm so happy to get to tackle this story and learn more about this myself, and I hope we can impart some wisdom on you, the listener at home. Now, did you play it back in the day? Were you one of the fortunate millions that, like, actually picked it up? I was about to say, yes, I played it back in the day, but not back in the, the, the day. 
You know what I mean? It's so weird that it's the game is actually so, we're so old and the game is so old that yes. the PS3 remake is actually back in the day at this point. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I played the PS3 remake. Or I no, do a, a remaster or whatever. Whatever. The PS4 yeah, one remake. is like an honest to god remake. It's a real actual, real ass actual remake. This I played it for the first time. I had been hearing about it for years mm-hmm. before I played it though. It had definitely traveled around word of mouth. It's definitely that game that that lost game for uh from the ps2 era for me of of like oh shit i really need to go back and play this game so when it did come out on ps3 and my roommate who had a ps3 just happened to pick it up i i got so lost in it and and it is one of those games that i'm so glad they did a remake on ps4 uh because it is one of those games that really does continue to be absolutely marvelous you know no matter what time period you play it in it still strikes you you know and no matter what other games have come out in the meantime, um, at least at this point in time, it still surprises in, ha- in its scope and in its just beauty. And, you know, it, it really is is quite quite a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, how about yourself? Uh, honest to God, I still have never touched it. Mm. Uh, just being so like keyed into video game culture and nerd culture. Obviously, I'm aware of the reverence this game has. I know a bunch of the references. I've watched Let's Plays of it, and but still never laid my hands upon it. And uh, it's just one of those things where I just never have owned a PlayStation console because I'm a soft, dumb Nintendo boy. Which is perfect. That's what makes us the perfect team, Jake. Because I'm like <laughs> Mr. PlayStation. Like yeah. I, I, that. That was all always. Always, I've ha- I've been on the PlayStation consoles, you know. And what's funny is not the- only that, but uh, you're in good company because uh, Ueda, the mm-hmm. the main creative force behind Team Ico uh, and Shadow of the Colossus, uh, he himself was a Sega boy, just like you. Yes, absolutely. He grew up in uh, Tatsuno, Hyoga, Japan, and he loved to explore the caves <laughs> and rivers. Fuck you. Fuck you. It's like on the front page of Reddit right now. Your goddamn in-joke has reached critical mass, and I hate it. But this is actually the difference between Fumitsu Ueda and Miyamoto as a child. As opposed to exploring caves and exploring, you know, and doing that sort of thing, uh, Ueda was really into creatures and living things. And he enjoyed – this is a quote from him. I enjoyed catching and keeping living things such as fish or birds. Other than that, I like both watching and making animation. Basically, I seem to be interested in things that moved. So as opposed to exploring landscapes and things like that, Ueda was more interested in the figure, in the form, in the creature. And I think that that was actually a thing always from his childhood. He spent a lot of time in class drawing manga and comics. Uh, he did characters and portraits of his friends, and he made up stories to go along with them, and he liked to, like, tell them. Surprise, it's a qu- otherwise quiet Japanese developer that found attention through manga and cartooning and in the arts. And specifically making caricatures of his friends. Now, that was someone else, and I'm trying it's to remember who that everyone. was. It's everybody, right? It's every Japanese guy. He he ends up uh, going to Osaka University of Arts in 1993, uh, or that he graduates from there in 1993, rather. It was a private arts university, very interesting place actually it was host to many prolific artists such as Hideaki Anno for example of Neon Genesis Evangelion fame Koji Kondo who is a composer for Super Mario and Zelda like OG NES yeah. Super Mario and Zelda and Ma- uh, Masahiko Minami who was a producer for Cowboy Bebop and Full Metal Alchemist a real like grab bag of different artists for both video games anime manga like real interesting cats coming out of this school uh, and uh, Ueda was originally uh, studying classic art and things. He says, if, if I was not in the games industry, I would want to become a classical artist. Though I regard not only games, but also anything that expresses something, be it films, novels, or manga, as forms of art. What's interesting, though, is, and um, a lot of things, by the way, Jake sent me this Schmopulations Oh, are we, are we quoting a uh, translated interview from Schmopulations? <laughs> Schmopulations, Jake. Um, and a to you, too, good sir. <laughs> we got a really good interview for, of with Fumito Ueda, um, who, by the way, if you haven't guessed, is like the Lord God of, the, of, of Shadow Colossus. He... he 
talks about how he was just really in in college. He kind of he he kind of lived like I lived. Yeah. Sans uh, in my in my uh, instance uh, without a motorcycle, he was really into his motorcycle, fucking around with his buddies. Like he really kind of slacked off a lot in college. He even talks about how like he did um, expressionist art or abstract art because that was something you could just slap fucking together. <laughs> There's no wrong way to do it. <laughs> Which reminds me so much of like the 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 visual artists uh, mm. students at you know I went to. Florida State, but oh, we yeah. were in no, the theater I, school. I minored and in vis- fine art, and believe me, half-assing an assignment at the last second is what art school was. It's it's a smart it's a smart approach to getting a degree. Absolutely, just just slap together some abstract bullshit. So already early on, we have some like key themes that'll enter into what made Shadow of the Colossus great. Uh, Ueda's uh, uh, fascination with like catching animals and seeing how they moved. Uh, it's the movement, really, the like the physicality of Shadow of the Colossus yes. that uh, was so revolutionary at the time. Uh, we'll get into why later. Um, and the, uh, the 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 focus on comp- if you're going to be an abstract art, basically what you're about is composition. Yes. And so much of the planning and what he made sure the team did was make sure how Wander and the Colossi were presented in frame. It was always mm-hmm. about like the actual physical dimensions of the screen and how much of it would be filled with the Colossus and the characters in the corner. And important that you mention in frame, and uh, that leads me to talk about you know the cinematic approach that Ueda had. He worked at a video store in college as well, and he said that even though he kind of slacked off in school, he was very into film. He would he, he had a film major buddy, and they would get together and make movies together and just kind of fuck around. And he was actually like, though he was slacking off in his actual curriculum, he was very... Very, he was working very intently, just not in visual art. It was a situation where essentially he realized that, like, why am I trying to be this like paint classical painter yeah. when all I'm doing is like watching movies and playing video games and doing all these other things that I, on my free time? Why don't I focus on that? He gets out of college, he sells his motorcycle, and he picks up an Amiga, the Commodore Amiga. Yes. Behold, the most powerful, creative, personal computer ever devised. <laughs> Are you telling me I can get up to 128 colors on screen at once? <laughs> Fucking shoot my nuts off. Oh, my God. My beat has exploded. Yeah, Polygonal exactly. deformation in real time. Oh, fuck. <laughs> he starts working uh, on his Amiga programming for it, and then he gets hired. I forget the name of the company. I don't know if you have known it offhand, but not Warp. Not yet. Okay. He gets hired at some other Local company. Local TV. Making, like, logos and stuff. Doing shit he does doesn't want to be doing and he, he, working on his own stuff. It's a, on his it's free a period time. of time uh, in the 90s. I think you'll, you'll be pretty familiar with it when just like having 3D computer animated shit in general seemed futuristic and cool. So he was hired by a local TV affiliate to make logos and interstitials and just kind of do uh, just kind of like basic animation work. And it's very crude. Like this this level of Amiga era 3D animation it's basically the money for nothing video uh, reboot. Like it's yeah. it's very janky. It's that awkward birthing phase of 3D animation. But he's cutting his teeth there. He's kind of and he's working on his own stuff on his free time, and that is what allows him to put together enough stuff to try to get a job over at Warp. Oh, are you talking about the legendary game company that made D? And D2. Warp. And Enemy Zero. Yes, it was a game dev started by Kenji Ino, a musician and game dev maverick. He made games like Real Sound. This is a really interesting game, actually. Have you heard about Real Sound? Mm-hmm. Real Sound is essentially a game made for the blind. It's a game with, with almost... I think they made a new version of it that had some visuals, but it's a game that was actually almost completely auditory. Oh wow! Yeah, and it was it was made sort of uh, for people who had no sight, and it was shipped with a bag of herb seeds. And this is another thing that Warp liked to do. Uh, another game, what was it called? Short Warp, I believe, is what it was called. Shipped with condoms. <laughs> He liked to ship games with weird stuff. I'm not sure why, but that was part of him being like this crazy maverick, and he liked to make weird-ass games. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a very 
it was a very good fit for Ueda in terms of a first job because it's a very experimental, weird, just trying new things in games, game dev company. And I think that also just kind of gave him the perspective of like, let's approach games in, in from the standpoint of like, how do we do something completely different, you know? Well, it was also a good fit because uh, what Warp, uh, major Warp. projects at the time were heavily involved in F in 3D animated FMV clips. Uh, games like D and Enemy Zero were kind of these like interactive movies or like adventure yes. games where this it, it would always start this like one blonde like white woman character. They like had an internal name for it, but the idea was like this was going to be the star of their game. She was more of an actress than a character. Ah. And uh, D was like a psychological crime thriller that you had to like solve puzzles and like a murderer's mindscape. And Enemy Zero was kind of a sci-fi thing. And so uh, Ueda was kind of in charge of like assembling these individual scenes on his like Amiga, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, a basic computer, like uh, personal computer hardware. Uh-huh. And it's very awkward. Like those games are super dated. I don't even think they have the assets to make like HD remasters of them. So all you can find online are just really grainy Saturn footage. I mean, they're mainly making games on the 3DO interactive multiplayer, yeah. you know. And and yes, on this and and the Saturn once the 3DO fell apart. Um, and uh, Enemy Zero is Ueda's first game that he worked on at Warp. He describes the time as incredibly arduous. The game was to- behind schedule. I mean, tell me for this one before about a game dev company, but but uh, the, the crunch. The game was behind schedule. Everyone had to work crazy hours. That they had a policy: never sleep in your seat. Uh, because always, that means you're not getting work done and you're not, and getting, you're not quali- getting good rest. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of hours we're talking about, like letting people know, like you can leave your chair and lay down if you need to sleep. <laughs> uh, that sort of a working situation. He didn't stay there for super, super long. He was able to like somehow um, get a job over at Sony. Well, because again, 3D animation was hot. Yes. Like the fact that he was able to produce these, what we now deem as like kind of awkward visuals uh, on his own was an incredibly valuable skill. And so Sony uh, needed that kind of talent for their games because that's what was getting headlines. Those were the cool graphics. Final Fantasy VII in our episode, we talked about how there was a mad rush to get these Silicon Graphics workstations and and like they were sucking up talent from across the world because the intoxicating power of crude CG animation was that much of a big deal in the 90s. So he presented his like uh, basically an animation reel and the Sony uh, computer entertainment, whatever the Sony's in-house uh, first party developer company uh, was like, you're good. You have an empty room full of like high end 3D hardware. Let's get you making a cool game. Yeah. Which then kind of gave him uh, this weird feeling of like, oh shit, I actually get to make a game. I want to make something so different and so new that like people have no choice but to like recognize that I'm doing something different. Yeah, one of the beautiful things about Ueda is kind of the fast track that he ended up with that allowed him to pretty quickly get into the situation of getting to, from a blank slate, create whatever he wanted. Mm -hmm. This is an art student. This is a kid who wasn't, you know, working for... Uh, Sony or Nintendo or someplace like that, apprenticing on a bunch of different games, getting a bunch of different influences from all over the place, like um, from, you know, the higher ups or whatever, or or given some kind of a specific job, like make Mario 3, you know, or something like that. We need another Mario Party, Hoshiro. Get your fucking ass in here. Fuck! It's Mario Party 8. Don't complain. (laughs) You're working 80 hours a week. Man, you have to shake the controller at least once in the, during the game. Tell you what, n- two weeks from now, I'll let you see your kid. <laughs> so Ueda wants to create a minimalist game around a boy meets girl concept. He wanted to have the two characters uh, hold hands during their adventure, forming a bond between them without communication. Without communication is an incredibly important aspect of what he wanted. And that just goes beyond the two characters communicating each other. He didn't want a HUD. He didn't want any kind of extraneous indicators or anything like that. And a lot of that was because he was inspired by a game 
called Another World. Two games, really. Another World and Flashback. Um, now, these were games. These were Amiga and Atari ST games. They were later ported to other systems like the Genesis but they were, and the SNES. They, got their, they were big on the Amiga. That yeah. was where they first got well, attention. And so I'm, I'm glad we're finally talking about Another World and Flashback because when I got my emulators going in college, I had multiple friends um, tell me, like, oh, you need to get Flashback. This is, like, the fucking best game. This is the game I played the shit out of as a kid. Flashback is the guy in the brown jacket. Another World is the weird redhead guy. Yeah, I think it's kind of like the difference between, like, sci-fi and fantasy. Or Out of of This World, I think, was in America. Yeah, yeah. So, um... So but they look very similar. Very, very similar, similar, very similar style. It's kind of like it's it's like you're moving through a series of screens. Mm-hmm. Kind of you, you, it's like trial and error pu- puzzle solving through various different screens. It's Prince very, of Persia style, very fluid animation, yes. and you're just presented with an individual screen, and you kind of just have to figure out how everything interacts and how best to navigate through it. Yes, and um, I tried to play them, but I feel like because I didn't catch them in the time that they came out, mm-hmm. they didn't really get their hooks in me at all did you have any relationship with these games at all? i remember fetishizing these games when they were around the 16-bit era because nothing else looked like them right and and that was a big part of their draw another big part of their draw was their innovative use of cinematic effects in both real time and cutscenes. cutscenes in a fucking cutscenes pixel game at all yeah i mean just having those and having those like integrate into each other seamlessly um, but they were missing some modern gaming quality of life issues, such as even remotely explaining what the fuck you're supposed to do or what anything does or what you do. Like, but I think Oedo was actually inspired by that mm. and, and wanted to create, a, again, just an incredibly minimalist experience where you have to just kind of figure those things out, you know, and, and on your own and, and sort of how little can we communicate to the player and how simple can we make the gameplay that anybody can just kind of pick it up and immediately get lost in the world, you know? And also you're going to get more lost in a world that doesn't have like a big, you know, shiny icon above, you know, a player's head or, you know, a but he didn't like numbers. He didn't mm. like stats, you know, that, that, that was not what interested him uh, when it came to video games. So, so he he starts to develop this idea. He wants uh he want he wants to feature AI, right? That's a big thing in games at this time. He wants to have AI, but he wants to have AI unlike AI that you know interacts with the environment or interacts with um you know uh d- interacts with what the player does. He wanted AI that interacted with the char- with the main character in the game and, and for there to be this really cool relationship between the two and tried to figure that out. That was like a new concept back then. He, he was a lonely kid. He just wanted a robot friend. Yeah, he also, I mean... A girl robot Both friend. games definitely involve like a, a love interest um, that ends up kind of... Um, in the end, as he puts it, it's like a frail love interest that ends up being the more powerful one by the end of the game. That was kind of his argument as mm. or what he was trying to show. Essentially like a Princess Peach that ends up beating Bowser at the end of the game is kind of what he was sort of saying that he was I, at least I'm gonna, getting at. I'm, he like walks – this is in the same Shmuplation yes. interview – he kind of walks up. He'll like he giggles and like kind of just goes like, "Nah, it feels good to have like a cute girl that needs your help." Yeah, like it's, it's that which as is, well. It's you know, it is what it is, it and is that's the is. old school too. That's the old, yeah. that's the old, uh, the old way. Um, but anyways, uh, so he, he's got other influences as well on the animation and the gameplay. Uh, uh, Virtua Fighter Lemmings was huge for him. Flashback Prince of Persia, as you mentioned. Uh, also though. Two PlayStation games really stood out to him, and that is, hilariously enough, Parappa the Rapper mm-hmm. and IQ. Parappa the Rapper mainly because... Which are two PlayStation, like, solid classics. You yes. know, they got the green greatest hits label. Right. IQ, do you remember IQ? I absolutely I remember IQ. I did not really... Pl- so can you describe IQ So IQ was kind of an action puzzle game with a very slick, uh, well-designed look where uh, you're basically a man... Uh, navigating these encroaching cubes and how you, uh, like, uh, basically you can set up traps where if the cubes land on them, it changes their properties and you can eliminate them. But it's a very simple uh, puzzle game. It's kind of this 3D Tetrisy action game, which in that era, you know, it wasn't Tetris. It wasn't um, Final Fantasy VIII. It was this unique use of, it was one of the first times that, like, they were using polygonal graphics to like 
not to try and replicate reality, but to create like a real sense of like design and simplicity. Yes. Which makes a lot of sense for Ueda also. And then Parappa the Rapper was more just, it was something that was created that looked really fucking cool and looked re- like really solid, good animation mm-hmm. done on that hardware. Right. It was very just impressive to him that something could look that good with the resources that they had. Correct. And, and th- so that's what really kind of got him about it. In other words, innovation in terms of getting that kind of product as opposed to just like muscle, you know, to get that kind they of They were product. both huge zags. Yes. To what the majority of games industry was zigging at totally, that time. Totally, totally. And that, so that makes so much sense. Um, so he had three different uh, notions that guided the design aesthetics of Eco. It was to uh, make a game that would be different from others in the genre. It was also to feature an aesthetic style that would be consistently artistic. And lastly, to play out in an imaginary yet realistic setting. They wanted to achieve this through subtracting design, as I previously mentioned, but that is the phrase for it. And by the way, did we even mention that we're talking about the video game Eco? It came up. <laughs> okay, good. I just wanted to make sure. The we're word. talking about the video game Eco that came before Shadow of the Colossus. <laughs> so subtracting design is essentially removing elements from the game which interfered with the game's reality. It was the removal of the HUD, focusing on just specifically escaping the castle, and uh, paring it down, uh, the enemy types down to just one. That was that was like kind of their main thing. Ueda said of this, I had I also had this feeling, how to put it, that the gameplay needed to be simple if it was going to reach out to non-gamers. Now this becomes an incredibly important factor in Ueda's design pr- uh, approach through everything that he does. He wants. He was so worried that. He had this whole idea that um, something happens, especially in his generation, where uh, the same people that loved video games, that loved the Famicom, that loved the Mega Drive, that loved all these all these things that were so crucial to them, they would just fall off. Eventually, it was designated as a child's thing, and a mature person just kind of forgets about video games. And he wanted to crack the code about why that happens, He's, what actually he puts says, people off of games. He says, point. yet no one graduates from movies, nor do they stop listening to music as they get older. For some reason, though, they stopped playing video games. Why was that, I wondered. I sensed a danger in it, that it boded poorly for the future. Uh, this almost to a fault did they do subtracting design in Eco. If you go back and play it, I think you might agree. They almost subtracted almost a little too much. The you game rely is a little, a little too bones. much on Yorda's uh, AI, which can get frustrating as she's just slowly navigating a ladder and you're just stuck there watching her. And the game that's there is just maybe not like like the art is beautiful. The, the lighting and everything, which we'll get into in just a second, absolutely gorgeous. But the actual game that's there might not be that fun. You know, just kind of like escorting a person. I mean, escort missions in general, this is one big escort mission. Mm -hmm. And then it's just solving these different puzzles to like get in, you know, to get through different rooms. And at the end of the day, unsatisfying stick based combat with shadow people. Yes. (laughs) At the end of the day, not 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 necessarily the most uh, enjoyable gaming experience. Um, So. Ueda brings in several people uh, outside, from outside of the game industry. I think there's another attempt from Ueda to try to make a game that would get non-gamers interested. He brings in people outside the game industry, including two programmers, four artists, and one designer. Now, from an artistic approach, though, you have to understand this is completely on its own turf at the time. It is a gorgeous game, and it still looks very pretty, I think. It is the first game ever to in- incorporate bloom lighting. Bloom lighting is the effect uh, that pr- that produces fringes or feathers of light extending from the borders of bright areas in an image, contributing to the illusion of an extremely bright light overwhelming the camera or eye capturing the scene. Think of like light pouring through like a church window, and you and you see it just sort of like like um, kind of bigger than the window itself. You know, this wasn't really seen inside of video games at the I time. I mean, it's kind of ironic that the muted color palette and bloom lighting that made Eco and Shadow of the Colossus so like kind of unique at the time are trends that like many people kind of begrudge and bemoan of the PS2, PS3 era ah. as like every game that wanted to be super serious, just put bloom lighting and right. gray colors over everything. Right, right, right. The, the brown era, as people often refer to it. Yes, yes. But he, when he gave it to us, he was the <laughs> one with uh, with Eco. 
Um, also, I do want to mention the cover really quickly. The the cover, not the non-American covers. The American cover looks like ass. <laughs> it sure does. But Ueda drew the iconic cover himself. You look it up. Look up the the eco cover, the European or Japanese eco cover. Uh, it was inspired by Italian artist Giorgio Di uh, Chirico. I hope I got that right. Um, and uh, this guy kind of led the movement that led to surrealism and like Dali, Dali paintings. You'd probably recognize a painting called The Song of Love from him. It's just that like weird statue head glove nailed to a wall and ball. It's just it's very iconic if you if you look it up. And um, he based the cover off of a particular Giorgio Di Chirico painting. The uh, Nostalgia of the Infinite, and if you look that up, it'll look very similar to the eco cover. He believed that the surrealistic world of G. Chirico matched the allegoric world of eco. I just want to bring that up just to tell, just to get across, like how the kind of approach Ueda was taking the games that nobody else was taking the games. Like that cut, just the cover of that game Mm -hmm. looks like nothing else. And it is so, and then look up the Americanized version of the cover of that game. And A, you'll realize why it sold dog shit. B, you'll see like, oh God, this is what he has to kind of work with too. Just people having no understanding for like what he was trying to do. It is such a, a dumb, obnoxious bad looking cover you know of just like the kid with the horns and like the sword and he's just like they curbified him yeah they really curbified him completely so i just you know i just think it's interesting like you've got this guy in the industry he's been given some i i'm still it makes sense because of the 3d imaging and everything Mm -hmm. but it still is kind of baffling to me that he was given so much control over his first game technically he was hired during the playstation era yeah. But uh, Sony was just so kind of rolling in cash and like knew the value of diversifying their kind of first party portfolio that they just let him like tool around with his small team, even when they were like, fuck it, we can't do this. Uh, can we do this on the PlayStation 2, actually? And yep. they let him. So Eco comes out. It's not like this huge, you know, it doesn't break down the doors or anything. It's not like like getting like insane money or anything, but it's like a prestige picture. It's like, a prestige picture and it's getting awards and he's getting interviews and people are fucking interested. And that's what leads Sony to allow him to make his next title, uh, which the was Am I a, pronouncing this right? Shadow of a Colossus. <laughs> Actually, originally it was a project called Nico. And Nico is uh the reason why it was called that was Ni in uh Japanese. Ichi-ni is two and eco of course eco so it was like essentially they were saying eco two was supposed to be a sequel to eco a team of 35 people is amassed and they were like a counter narrative i'm just going to acknowledge this because it's like a weird micro controversy in the shadow of the colossus fandom uh they in other interviews they say that the n stands for next and it's next eco for nico but fuck it it literally does not matter right right I'm um, just acknowledging it, you nerds. <laughs> uh, so they show a demo at the 2003 Dice Summit. Di- the Dice Summit is an annual multi-day gathering of video game executives held in Las Vegas, Nevada. They the the demo depicts a group of masked horned boys riding horses while attacking and defeating a colossus, a big big monster, right? It looks cool. The music's great. Did you watch the video? I don't yeah, know, did you uh, see it? it's. They never meant for it to be the same kid from Eco. They just like had the model lying around, and it did the job. That's why he's covered. That's why they cover him with a mask because there's. They'd be like, I know it's the kid from Eco, but we're not actually. It's not actually Eco. And this team is is serious. I mean, Ueda felt that only one or two out of five hundred artists who applied to work on Shadow of Colossus met his criteria. Where Uida stresses the art, uh, you've got producer Kenji Kaido putting a huge emphasis on physics. He wants to have the Colossi move in a certain way and have Wander, that is our protagonist, by the way, move realistically in response to this. Also, he wants Wander to use movements to his advantage, such as when a Colossus moves its arm to a horizontal position, Wander will be able to run alongside it like the iconic boss um, uh, Colossi with the giant sword, and he slams it down, and then you run up the sword, and that's how you get up onto the class. Oh, I also kind of fucked that boss because that boss pretty the motherfucker. No, nah, you kidding? if you need to show someone like what the fuck I uh, when doing my research, which I guess is the official term of when I'm sitting in the living room doing research while Marie is also like just doing whatever she wants to do next <laughs> to me. Uh, 
she, you know, I was trying to explain why it's such a big deal. And I just immediately went to the Gaius fight because it is, again, because it's Ueda's eye for animation and scale. Yes. Combined with the uh, programming team's technical innovations, which I guess now is a good time to get into, uh, that like really communicates, especially during the PS2 era. This is, you know, this is pre-HD. This is... You know, on a CRT monitor, nothing else like even remotely moved like this. Yes. Um, some of the techniques they uh, innovated in were uh, deformative collision, which is kind of like how soft bodies interact, as well as inverse kinematics, which is kind of how, uh, if you think about how Wander's grip works, where the hands are staying perfectly still, like you have hit the grip button and you are gripping onto either a cliffside or the Colossus's fur. And the body is reacting in very yes. realistic ways. Terrifyingly real. And it leads to that feeling of, of oh, my God, I'm, I'm actually on this thing, and I'm actually going to fly off this thing if I don't be careful. And what inverse kinematics allows you to do is it allows you to mix canned animation. So, like, the way that Wander will, like, search for a foothold and, like, kind of, like, react like a human would while overlaying... Uh, information from the physics system. So, like, uh, so as the Colossus moves, his body is being ragdolled a little bit to kind of like match the motion of the Colossus, while seamlessly mixing the canned animation that Ueda really wants in, and they're combining in a way that it, it it's so real. Uh, even simple stuff like how he navigates the terrain and how Agro navigates the terrain. There's a video online from uh, the extra credits team where they go on for minutes just about how amazing in the PS2 era they actually got a realistic image of a man riding a horse on a like on a cliffside not the dumb Skyrim horse style where it's just standing on a sheer cliffside but Agro will like shift its weight and his and her I'm sorry her even though in the English version they say him mm. Ueda and the team confirmed it's a lady horse all right uh and Agro will actually dynamically lean back to like create a real center of balance and um, some of the glitchier aspects, because, you know, uh, if you look at Agro's animation, his hilt is just constantly clipping through his hand. Uh, you know, everything's kind of falling over the place. Even that cool shot of uh, the blanket getting ripped off of Mono in the mm. opening uh, opening temple. Like, it's gorgeous. It's breathtaking. They nailed, like, the timing and the weight and, like, the flow of the blanket. Uh -huh. It's still glitching out left and right. Yeah. it cre it's This is stuff that, like... Now when you play a game like GTA V and you like punch a civilian and like they fall back but then recover like a real person, these are techniques that, you know, were has been built on for decades. The Havoc engine, all these like individual systems made to create realistic movement, and the Shadow of the Colossus team were building this from scratch and refining it. And animators and programmers were working hand in hand so that the physics wouldn't throw off the canned animation so much. Uh, basically, the animators learned how to program physics and the physics people learned how to do animation. It was so key that how the game felt and looked on screen matched Oeda's uh, demands. So uh, when they talk about the process of making this game, you know, they had like the they had the Colossus designs. They had the field. They had the concept art. They knew what they wanted to do. But it was just about refining and refining and refining all these systems so that it like created this this whole. So the yeah, the tech is so incredibly impressive and then the and then the ideas that they have going into it are like how do we make this even though obviously these are fantastical creatures and everything like that, like how do we make these creatures move as realistically as these creatures might move? How do we make aggro uh, act like a real actual horse. And uh, Oeda says of this, a real horse doesn't always obey. It's not like a car or a motorcycle. It won't always turn when you say turn. Um, so they even made it so that when you gave aggro commands, it didn't always follow them. That was like in the programming. That wasn't some they, kind of glitch. They, apparently in earlier versions of the game, that, system, that, uh, that was like pushed way more forward to make aggro even more realistic. But yes. they had to... So only once, like, if you're trying to, like, stop aggro, aggro won't, like, stop immediately. Yes. Uh, one of the common observations about Shadow of the Colossus and aggro is that uh, in other games, uh, stuff like The Witcher and uh, a lot of games that, like, not Red Dead Redemption. Red Dead Redemption actually did really well. But in Shadow of the Colossus, it was really the first time that you weren't just driving a horse. You were playing a guy 
riding a horse like you know you weren't moving aggro you were moving wander who was moving the reins who was moving aggro you know what i mean mm-hmm. absolutely and um he also he they also wanted to uh set the game apart obviously by having the uh having there be no actual like levels or anything like that and they're just only the only concept here is that you are taking down these 16 different colossi. Oops, all bosses. Yep, it's a game of nothing but bosses. Nobody had ever really done that before. I, to my knowledge, no, no you're right. Ever... That was like a big, like, oh shit moment when someone nuts. tried to describe Shadow Classes. Like, you don't understand. It's all it bosses. It made me immediately want to play it. We're, because people were also like, well, the bosses can kind of like be the level because they're so huge. Mm-hmm. And that immediately was like, that concept was incredible to me. And I was like, immediately I want to play this game. Also, I love that he, uh, this this uh, way that he refers to the design. He refers to them as inverted Zelda dungeons. Yeah, that's so that a really good. fucking dope. <laughs> it's literally because it's, uh, you know, think Ocarina of Time, you're going across Hyrule Field and then entering a dungeon. Whereas if you just kind of like reach into the dungeon and pull it inside out, you have a sh- you have a Colossus. Just all these like, physical puzzles and all these problems you have to solve around it yep it's so smart so then we get to the lighting now of course we already have the bloom effects going in full force from eco but also uh he wanted he wanted to use lighting to establish a dark fearsome setting for the forbidden land and only having the light be coming from the hero's sword which is used as a navigational tool and um there to be purely visual as a way to communicate to the player where to go next. These elements uh, that they used were desaturated colors, motion blur, and partial high dynamic range rendering with obviously a heavy emphasis on the bloom lighting. Um, So let's talk about some of these elements. Uh, Desaturated colors. This is essentially determined by a combination of light intensity and how much it is distributed across the spectrum of different wavelengths. To desaturate a color, you essentially just add white, black, or gray. Desaturating colors is exactly what Jake was referring to when he was talking about what everybody kind of did around this time. What are some games that have the desaturated colors? Gears of War. I was just about to say Gears of War. What what else? Uh, Grand Theft Auto Four, I think, had a little had, bit of the, yeah, the brownies. Definitely that 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 sort uh, of so many military shooters of the era. All the like Call of Duties and all that kind of stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. This is what we're talking about. It was kind of when it was like, yeah, we're like, it was Real. almost like games went through its grunge phase, like absolutely. a few years after, you know, like gr- you know, like it was kind of like after the grunge era. Games went couldn't dark have said and it better better myself. <laughs> and then high dynamic range. I had a hard time trying to understand this concept. High dynamic range is the real-time rendering and display of virtual environments using a dynamic range of 65,355 to 1 or higher. Uh, I'm not completely sure what that means. It's essentially just when you're looking out on an environment, it's just how intensely well that environment is rendered from what I could gather. And, of course, Shadow of the Colossus has no shortage of breathtaking views. And it seems like that is is kind of what they're getting at by high dynamic range. Like, there's dynamic range, and then there's high dynamic range. Also, they had several different, like, uh, they had really good scaling on the uh, outdoor scenes so that, you know, as you got closer to something, it would render with more polygons. As it was further away, it would be more simple. So, like, no matter where you were, you could look out and feel this bigger world around you, kind of Dark Souls style. So, in terms of themes and everything, uh, I loved this from Ueda. He says, the deeper theme that lies beneath the many layers of the game is cruelty. He says, I've never thought that cruelty is something forbidden in video games. Video games seem to require cruelty as a means of expression, and that being the case, I wanted to try to present my own take on cruelty. That was really the seed idea from Shadow of the Colossus. And in reference to that, he kind of mentions, because uh, this is around this time, right? Uh, well, yeah, should we, should we, I guess we kind of like have kind of kept it close to the vest, but I we got to talk about kind of... What is sort of the twist of this game? Yeah, let's just say we're pretty far into the episode right now. If you haven't played Shadow of the Colossus and you really want to, we might be spoiling some things as we get into the story elements of it. So I would just recommend maybe skip past this next 10 minutes or just stop everything and play the game. Okay, let's talk about it, right? Uh, You're the bad guy. You are absolutely the bad guy. (laughs) You're a selfish dick that wants to bring back your dead sister, wife, girlfriend, whatever. And all these big, burly rock monsters are just big old teddy bears. And they don't want you. They're so cute. And 
uh, I'm thinking uh, there's like a few bosses that really hit it home. Yes. Um, uh, Gaius with the big sword. You know, you're looking. He's so tall, and when you're looking up at him, you see these like just angry like eyes looking up at you. And then you finally you run up his sword, you climb all the way up, and you finally get to his face, and he has the doofiest, cutest little duck yep. mouth. Just little cute, cutesy eyes. Uh, he wasn't doing anything to you. Also, um, probably uh, Avion, the bird. Oh, yeah. Just the first flying colossi. I have actually a list of notable colossi for my playthrough. These names are weird. They don't appear anywhere in the game. It was like a Japanese magazine at some point, formally. Yeah, Avion, or in the Latin, Avis Preda, uh, is the bird, uh, the flying bird one. It's absolutely majestic. You, you, in order to get on onto it, you have to jump onto it as it swoops down at you. You have to shoot an arrow at it, and then it'll swoop down at you, and then you jump onto its back um, as it flies past you, and then all of a sudden you're fucking airborne, and it is one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. I literally, there were so many moments playing Shadow of the Colossus that did this, but this is absolutely one of them. It was like I had to take a moment and just be like, this is Absolutely incredible. Like, like, almost had to put the controller down. But, of course, I couldn't because I'm furiously holding on to this bird. Celosia, <laughs> uh, which is one of the little, like, boar guys. Yes. Uh, when the one that's afraid of fire. Yeah, or the- so, yeah, he's, like, this mad animal. And then you finally, like, uh, pick up these you – know, you pick up a torch and light it with this sacred flame that it seems to have been guarding. And it cowers like a kitten. It's just – it is real. It is, like, you. it's real emotion. And you just, like, don't want to hurt it. But you gotta. Yeah. Because otherwise, why are you playing? Right. And uh, Malice has like this really uh, cool moment where, you know, you it's the last one. It's the most threatening one. Grandis Supernus in the Latin. Um, he's, his entire, he's scary. He's, he's super scary. Terrifying. His entire environment is like this just charred battlefield. But like when you finally are getting up to him, at one point, he'll just kind of stop and just stare at you. This like curious little creature on your on his arm and like. You have to physically stab him to, like, get him mad again. Yeah. Uh, another one, actually, to top it off would be uh, Pelagia uh, or per-, per Magnus Pistrix in the Latin. It's the giant one with, like, the lush greenery on the back of its head. And, oh, with the tooth crown. Yeah, with the tooth crown. And you and, and he just seems so nonviolent. And he just, like, is inquisitive. And he comes up to you to, like, see you. And you have to jump on its mm-hmm. lush greenery. It's just, like... I, I mean, I think he's, you know, he'll harm you, he'll hurt you or whatever, but he's just so pretty looking, and you're just like, man, I have to kill this pretty thing, this, like, beautiful statue, you know? And to hit it home, once you do kill the Colossus, uh, just evil dark energy infuses your body, and you get knocked the fuck out. Yeah, and, and the whole thing, I mean, the ending is uh, was one of the most striking moments. It reminds me a lot of some uh, games like uh, Brothers of Tale of Two Sons does mm-hmm. similar stuff with it later. But the moment um, at the end when you have to essentially give up in oh, order to uh, win, I mean, it's, in order to fit into the game. This is like games journalism 101 bullshit yeah. right here. But like it's the moment where you realize the whole time the game is about when to hold on and when to let go. Ugh, it's fucking so good. And I fought and fought and fought before I realized what I had to do. And again, I just had that moment where I just kind of smiled and like laughed and was like, I can't believe how brilliant this is i literally have to put the controller down to finish this i cannot i cannot get my way i cannot get this you know reach this way because you're trying to reach this the woman mono mono the woman of your love that you've been trying to save you're just trying to reach her and no matter how hard you try no matter what what you do you'll just keep getting pushed back it's just such a brilliant moment and i think that this kind of trope has been used later on in mm-hmm. different sort of, say, artful games. But this was really the first fucking time it's ever been done, you know. And and it's done so well, so beautifully. Let's add on top of that the music uh, the entire time, which is this incredibly tragic, incredibly just, just like just gut-wrenching music that not only pr- prevails tragedy but also invokes a sense of isolation and loneliness and, and, you know, but then there's also the big triumphant theme as you're climbing one of the Colossus. Yes. Like it's almost the, it's pretty much the super Mario brothers theme of the, of the, of the game, because you're, you know, you do hear this, like, I do you remember, I, I'm like struggling to remember the exact like melody of it, but the climbing Colossus theme is so triumphant and like adventure daring do. Uh huh. Let's, let's say maybe, uh, if we can play a clip of that.
so this music was composed by Kao Otani. After college, uh, he became a founding member of the music production company Imagine in 1986 with a bunch of other just really kind of prolific uh, musicians. Uh, definitely check them out. Imagine's very interesting. He de- debuted as an anime composer for the popular manga adaptation of City Hunter. Oh shit! Yeah, he did City Hunter, there were which boobs is like a, in that one. Yeah, it's like a it's like a sexy detective. Uh, uh, anime. Uh, all detectives are sexy. Blue lives matter. <laughs> he also went on. I can't believe that I have a, a this soon of a Cuckoo crossover from our last episode. He also went on to compose for Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, giant monsters all out attack. Oh my god! <laughs> Along with anime such as Gundam Wing and Out. Oh, shit. And more recently, he worked on Diablo 3. Uh, it is, he does a f- fucking phenomenal job. The music is so standout in this game. It is so well done. It is so, and, and also, again, with the subtracting design, it's also not only used in very particular moments. It's not constantly there. There's so much silence and empty space so that when the music happens, it is incredibly striking and incredibly powerful. On direction from Ueda, uh, the soundtrack relies heavily on various like ethnic instruments that you don't normally hear in traditional classic Western music or Japanese music. Uh, so the bazooki of all things, you know, that like ding, 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 like Greek instrument uh-huh. uh, features heavily because it kind of uh, exists in kind of the Middle East Mediterranean soundscape, which is halfway between Europe and Asia and lends itself to the idea that you're in a very foreign land. Also, along with the lack of music in certain spaces, there is an absolute and utter lack of spoken word in Shadow of the Blocks. What? They speak gibberish. They speak some gibberish. Um, And apparently that gibberish text, if you beat the game or I believe it'll it'll put it in English or something. You you get subtitles. You get subtitles, right? On on that lack of spoken word, Ueda had to say this. It's I love this quote, by the way. This is great. And again, I cannot believe this crossover that you're about to hear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're doing this. It's a little difficult for me to explain, but games like Flashback, Out of This World, and even Grand Theft Auto 3, which, by the way, he also references in in reference to his take on cruelty, because around that time he was playing Grand Theft Auto 3, and he was like, I get it, cruelty (laughs) in games, right? And this is my Grand Theft Auto, essentially, Shadow of the Colossus. I'm not very good at English. English, he said. So I don't really understand what's going on in those worlds very well. That's been the case with most games I personally imported. And yet, it's precisely my not knowing that makes my experience exciting. There's a movie called The Iron Giant. And Oof. for that, too, I can't believe it. And for that, too, I found the English version more moving than the Japanese. I didn't understand what they were saying. But what I imagined in my own head was all the more moving to me. Which for an additional crossover point, that same disconnect with like uh, consuming English media and having to fill in the gaps and kind of making your own story means it's more meaningful than just being told the story yourself is very similar to what uh, Miyazaki talked about mm. in how he talked to, well, how he did storytelling and he wouldn't have started video games if it wasn't for Ueda making eco. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the fact is, is like a lot of people talk about how the story is vague but the fact is, you, that just means you can imbue more stuff into it. And about that story, it is uh, maintained by Oeda that the game's status as a prequel to Eco was simply his personal take on the game, not necessarily its canon nature, which is very weird to me. It's like if the creator in his head decides that the game is a prequel, doesn't that make it canon? What makes something canon? I don't even understand anymore. It's it's There's like this weird thing with Japanese creators, uh, Osamu Tezuka and a lot of others, Just have kind of this recurring like visual trademarks and themes and even like individual characters that will appear in later works that aren't related technically, but like there's the same character. So I think just the idea of shadow creatures and boys with horns are all just like kind of his just things that he finds interesting. So Mm. the fact that they appear in both games is not necessarily an A to B thing, but more of just like that old way to magic. He, uh, he says that he largely intended for players to decide the specifics of the story for themselves. Again, the minimalist approach from Ueda, but he confirmed that the two do have a connection. Both protagonists have horns, at least uh, the protagonist in Shadow sprouts them near the end, uh, and Eco has them the whole time. You've got these shadowy figures that are uh, have been said to be the same enemy 
from Eco that happen in the beginning of the game in Shadow of the Colossus. So the worlds do have a sort of a, a shared connection. The game is released in 2005 and in PAL regions in 2006. Uh, Sony actually, unlike Eco, gets really involved in the marketing for this, and therefore the game is a much larger success. Still not, you know, Grand Theft it's, Auto, but, you know, it's, it's a actually success. a much bigger success in North America than it is in Japan, where oh, it's still kind of like a niche, kind of like curiosity. Mm. But uh, it sells a couple million copies in America. That might be due to the viral marketing approach online. They had a game website that posted links to several different websites claiming that the remnants of five giants resembling certain colossi had been discovered in various parts of the world. They were doing this is around that its, time, right? It has its own Snopes article because like yeah. people were like, did they really find giants in Ireland? Like, no, it was a fucking video game commercial. <laughs> go back to iHeartBees.com. I mean, and it, it, the game is referenced time and time again as this, this you know, the argument for why video games are art. I mean, I don't know if you want to get into the whole the Ebert thing, you know. It's just, it's it came to prominence, and it comes to prominence a lot, actually, as um, I don't want to make fun of it too badly, because the fact is that it is a high quality, but, like, game, especially during that era, things that were just irrefutably poetic and emotional and, like, had something to say were few and far between, so Shadow of Colossus stood as as, uh, as the most readily available reference. In um, There's an entire scene in the terrible Adam Sandler movie, Rain Over Me, which is about Adam Sandler playing a traumatized uh, former like New Yorker whose entire family died in 9-11, and he's like repressed, paranoid, and has mental problems because of it. And there's an entire scene where Don Cheadle connects with him because together they're playing Shadow of Colossus. And it's not like incidental. They go into like each Colossus and like they talk about which button calls your horse and like they're shooting down the phalanx. It's like really surreal. It's uh, it's <laughs> but again, especially I'm sure the screenwriter was like trying to convince his girlfriend that video games aren't just like bullshit and Shadow of Colossus, you know, he it's. If you were if you cared about how video games were perceived, Shadow of Colossus was like one of the few arrows in your quiver to like definitively be like if this is immature bullshit, explain this. And it is at a time when that was not so prevalent. It's so it's not even an argument anymore. But oh, I guess if we're talking about the right time, um, you know, this is the era that uh, you know there were congressional hearings over San Andreas and hot yeah, coffee and shit. Totally. So, like again, people needed that shield from that criticism. Um, yeah, they needed that one thing, and this was like one of the only games. Um, was Flower out back then? I can't remember. No, that was PS3. That was PS3. I thought there was there was some others that were. I know Flower was used for Ebert. He kind of was <laughs> criticizing it a little past the time of people really needing to argue that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was just. It was, I mean, it, Flower Journey. Uh, but Journey hadn't. I mean, Journey hadn't come. Journey out hadn't come point. out yet, but it's just. Shadow of the Colossus like opened the door for this entirely uh for for these poetic kind of non-traditional narratives to 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 have a place in in the regular gaming world. But I guess also one thing uh we didn't really mention too or we touched on with Eco, but to bring it home, I think would make Shadow of the Colossus the better argument for that was it actually at the core has a fucking cool game there. There's mm. a cool mechanic game there. I mean they, um, you're talking they, about the segments where you're just running alone on aggro through giant open fields, right? <laughs> I mean, you're just that's stuck with your own awesome thoughts too. and silence. Yeah, that's like, I mean, that's awesome. But yeah, the actual fighting of the Colossi is is awesome. Like the and and they're all so different. I have a list of different notable Colossi. I would like to go over with them with you, Jake. We've already named a few of them, but I will name a couple more. Okay, Jake. Mm-hky-do. So the first one I th- I put on my list for not- my personal notable Colossi was Valis. The very first Colossi you fight because he's the very first one you fight, this giant minotaur. You only get glimpses of it as you get closer to his lair. It's the most striking thing, you know, uh, up to that point because it's the very first one. You're like, I can't even believe I can kill this thing, you know? And then the experience of taking it, it's a perfect first Colossi. It's not even nearly as big as some of the other ones get. It's just the perfect kind of size 
and uh, scope. You you get up to it, and you're just barely a speck compared to its one of its hooves. And you're just like, holy shit. And you kind of crawl up. Not barely a speck. You're probably like the size of its hoof, right? The height of one but of its But it's, you know, you, you turn the camera up, and it's just constantly just staring at you. Yeah, it's just, it's just absolutely breathtaking. And a, most, a large notable, because it's the only one. We already talked about Avion the Flying one. I thought Hydrus was such a cool one. Hydrus or Draco Marinus, the electric water colossi that you have to kind of climb up like uh, along its back and time it right so that you're above water during the electricity points. It was like such a really cool uh, mechanic. Because again, I'd like to note as we talk about these colossi, not only was the basic mechanic of toppling a colossi really cool, but on top of that, every single one felt different. Felt very different, like just from a design standpoint, it was clear. Much like to reference another episode, Street Fighter Two, when they were trying to make all the characters incredibly different <laughs> and interesting, each Colossi has a fascinating, completely different approach. As I mean, there's similarities. I'm not gonna say they're not. You know, I but mean, in Barba, you got to grab his beard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. the other ones have a beard. Yeah, he like goes and looks and tries to check on you because you go and hide a little thing, and then you just like run up and jump on his beard. It's so cool. Um, I, I was gonna, I was thinking about mentioning that one, but I didn't even write that one down. Uh, Pelagia or Permagnus Pistrix, the giant one. Um, with the green. Oh, that's the giant one with the green man on the top of, top of its head. Sorry, I already mentioned that one. I meant to say phalanx or Eris Velivolis, which is the flying one in the desert, and it is the one of the most cinematic things I've done in a video game. Which is you have to ride on aggro, and then at the correct time, as the uh, f- this is another giant flying one, as it dips its wing, you have to fucking jump off your horse. Onto the Colossi. It is kind of a pain in the ass, but it is also one of the coolest, most like cinematic fantasy film thing I've ever done in a game. Um, and then um, just to note, one of the small ones, there's Cenobia or uh, Clady's Candor, which is a small one in which you have to um, essentially, it's it's like they created a platforming one for uh, taking down a Colossus. It's like a bull that smashes into giant pillars, and you have to use that mechanic to sort of make your way around these different pillars to finally get to where you can topple it. Um, so again, it was like one of those where it was more about actually the environment than the, than the Colossi itself. So they're just constantly I, I, yeah. inventing new ways to have you approach this gameplay concept. And and that alone is just so wonderful, especially when you're, we're not talking about five or eight. We're talking about 16 different battles, and they all feel wholly unique. And, and, uh, and I asked um, some friends of mine over at the Dorkley offices who were more, uh, you know, who had played the game, uh, which ones were the most bullshit? And the overwhelming, uh, the number one was uh, Dirge. People did not like Dirge, which is the sandworm guy. Yeah. Uh, because it's that kind of deal where he you're, he's just like kind of hiding underground and you don't quite know where he's going to pop up. And then yeah. you got to run over to him. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get to him before he goes underground again. Yeah, he's a fucker. Um, which is one of the, actually, just to acknowledge kind of the uh, more frustrating things about the game is oh, yeah. so much of it is based on predicting how the AI will react to you. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is about getting like the exact right distance from the creature at the exact right angle so it'll do a thing that you need it to do to continue the fight. And this is AI from, you know, the PlayStation 2 days. So, I mean, we're talking about some pretty janky AI. Also, the controls themselves were very obtuse and difficult and unwieldy. This partially, this really works in terms of gameplay mechanic to storytelling because it ha- it's a wily scenario. You're a little guy. Yeah, you're not a warrior. Around. Yeah, you're not a warrior. So it definitely adds to the experience but at the same time it's still unavoidably aggravating throughout you got yeah you kind of have to get into its rhythm uh kind of the trial and error if you're going in blind to figure out exactly what you're supposed to do in any given situation can be a little bit frustrating um even uh the one that i was talking about even um uh Celosia, which was like this supposed to be this key emotional moment i've heard people say that, that was the most frustrating one because they figured out the torch thing, but they would just get a little too close to him. And there's an animation that triggers if you're like right up in his face with it where he'll just swat your ass down. And then you enter this like knockdown animation that gives uh, the creature enough time to like run you over and kill you before you even had a chance to react. Uh-huh. 
And so, like, how are you supposed to know that you were supposed to keep the flame just, like, a little bit back? Right. That's, like, some weird, you know, so. Stuff uh, like no that. No game is perfect. Yeah. Several games are perfect. Several <laughs> games are incredibly perfect. Zelda Link Between Worlds. Super um, Mario Odyssey. You know, a lot of <laughs> games are perfect. I'm, I'm kidding. But. It's, you know, we don't want to completely ignore the fact that there are some some rough edges on that. I mean, this was such a, you know, giant leap in ter- for that time in so many different ways. Of course, there's going to be jank and craziness, you know. And, of course, it's PlayStation 2, so, I mean, it's just kind of inevitable, you know. Um, you do something new, you're going to get jank. But I will say they did refine the controls uh, for the Shadow of the Colossus remake that came out on February 6, 2018. They also uh, did a full remake using ultra high definition art assets. And uh, that is phenomenal. I have it. I played a little bit of it. I think I might try to stream, do a full playthrough on stream. Uh, very soon, maybe when this episode released, maybe that'd be a good time to do that. Uh, and yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. PlayStation Four, definitely check it out um, if if you haven't before. It still is awesome. So and um, yeah, I mean, you know that that's sort of the game's legacy. There's also a whole other story to tell about Team Eco and um, the Last Guardian, and I would love to tell that. I think we're going to actually talk about the development hell of that game in a bonus episode for our Patreon, which you can get involved in on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew um, and you can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho you can follow me on twitter at bestjakeyoung and hey uh, you there on the phone right now why don't you just uh, open up your podcast app and leave a review maybe on iTunes maybe on Google Play uh, it gives us a huge boost and you can do it right now instead of I don't know just like staring at that lady at the subway stop staring at that lady stop staring at that fucking lady dude she's a lady she is a woman lady <laughs> alright or the homeless person in New York, you can never tell. <laughs> just stop staring at ever. Just stop it. Just leave a review. Just stare at your phone. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, everybody, and have a wonderful day. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.